أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين السلام عليكم brothers and sisters I am so happy to join you during these blessed days of Dhul Hijjah thank you to Cambridge Muslim College may Allah preserve and expand this wonderful institution for uh, giving me the opportunity to join you today in remembering the blessed, blessed family of Sayyidina Ibrahim and Hajar and Ismail. May Allah uh, send his peace and blessings upon all of them. This is a story of uncertainty. It's a story of oppression. It's a story of hardship and separation. At the same time, it is a story of faith, of growth, of new connections, and of resilience. In sum, it is the story of humanity. Human beings are built for movement. First, for walking, we have our upright posture, our two strong legs, our eyes placed in front of our heads so our gaze is directed forward. And if we lose a leg or two legs, our arms are strong and we are intelligent. Allah gave us that intelligence. So we devise other means of transportation, wheelchairs and other modes of being able to continue to move forward to keep us moving. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Holy Quran tells us that the ability to move and travel and move around this earth are part of human dignity. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we have conferred dignity upon the children of Adam and transported them over land and sea and provided for them substance, sustenance out of the good things of life and favored them far above most of our creation. Voluntary movement, of course, is different than forced migration or displacement. But even those who choose to move, for most of us, it is a difficult choice. We move because we want the opportunity to grow, to realize our potential, or to be free to live more aligned with our values and our conscience. Sayyidina Ibrahim was forced to leave his home and move again and again. And then during his life, he had to continually travel to visit his divided family. Sayyidina Hajar and Ismail were forced to make a new home. For Sayyidina Hajar, this was at least her second major displacement. We do not know the story of her origins, but we know it must have been a terrible thing that ended up with her being a slave in Egypt. Sayyidina Ismail, he eventually found a home in Mecca and he was very young then. We don't know exactly what his age was or what he may have remembered from his earlier life, but certainly he heard about it as he got older, this amazing, and difficult story 
of his young life. He did find a home in Mecca and he became naturalized to that land. But perhaps we see the restless spirit in him in the fact that he would go out to the desert and hunt with a bow and an arrow. Now, a short note about what we know and don't know about this blessed family. You know, certainly, uh, we have some guidance from the Holy Quran, and this is primarily what we rely on. And we rely on the authenticated uh, hadith, the reports from the blessed Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and in this talk, I will be relying heavily on a very long, extensive um, report, a recording of the story that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told about this family and their arrival in Mecca and what happened after. It is, it is you know, one of the rare, very long, extensive uh, stories that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, tells. And it's narrated by uh, Ibn Abbas. Um, may Allah be pleased with him, the Prophet Muhammad's blessed uh, cousin, of course, and companion. And there are other narrations uh, of various levels of soundness that are found both in, um, in all of the Hadith collections. And we'll be referring to some of them sometimes. Now, we don't want to project so much of our own feelings or experience on a story that happened many, not many thousands of years ago. I mean, it may be that Sayyidina Ibrahim lived in the second uh, millennium uh, BCE of the before the common era. Yet, these are human beings and their stories are archetypal. And they're particularly archetypal because they are connected with the archetype of obedience to God, of the unity of Allah, the birthplace of uh, sacred spirituality, which is Mecca. And so there's so much that we can learn from their stories. Now, Sayyidina Ibrahim, as we say, was born many thousands of years ago in, the, in Western Asia, in the what we could call the watershed of the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. He uh, was apparently born during the time of a tyrant named Nimrod. And there are reports that when he was born, Astrologers told him that there would be a boy born in his time who would reject uh, his faith and who would break the idols. And so in this report, uh, Nimrod, Nimrod orders all of the uh, infant boys or baby boys to be killed. Abraham's mother hid her pregnancy. She gave birth in a cave at night and kept her baby secretly there and then told people that her baby had died during childbirth. We don't know much about her, but in her we see that part of Allah's sunnah, which is to give 
good and clever mothers to prophets. Think of the mother of Sayyidina Musa, Aide Salam, and what she had to do in order to keep her son alive and then also to reunite with him. Think of the hardship and difficulty that Sayyidatina Maryam, the mother of Isa, went through um, in her uh, pregnancy and then delivery of Jesus. Now, uh, according to reports, Sayyidina Ibrahim's father, Azar, sold idols and he made um, Sayyidina Ibrahim work in his business, his family business. But then Sayyidina Ibrahim went through a spiritual awakening. And we have the beautiful narration in the Quran about Sayyidina Ibrahim, where he goes through this process of um, trying to find the truth, seeking the truth, associating the um, associating the you know heavenly bodies with uh, with Allah, and then realizing that that all was false. And eventually he comes to the realization that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not one of any of these creations as, as brilliant and beautiful as they are, but he, Allah is the creator of all things. And Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, says, indeed, I, turned, I have turned my face towards him who created the heavens and the earth. Um, I am one who is a Hanif in the mold, returning to the mold of fitra, the fitra that human beings are all um, endowed with, created and shaped in at the in their creation by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Now, when Sayyidina Ibrahim rejects the idols and the gods, he alienates his father, he alienates his people, he alienates the ruler. He has to go through such trials and hardship. He is ordered to be burned alive. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cools that fire and makes sure that he is safe. And eventually Sayyidina Ibrahim is saved. He has his salvation. And he marries a pious woman and eventually they need to leave. And it may be because of oppression, it may be because of famine, but they do end up in Egypt and there they encounter more difficulty. The wife of Prophet Ibrahim, Sarah, is a beautiful, um, elegant, smart, clever woman and the Egyptian tyrant wants to accost her. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saves her by paralyzing his hand every time he reaches out towards her. And it only is her dua for his hand to become uh, functional again that gives him that ability back. So here we have subhanAllah, another amazing woman who keeps her cool in her faith in a very tough situation. And because of that, uh, 
he becomes afraid of her and he lets her go and she goes back to Sayyidina Ibrahim. But Sara has another sadness, which is that she has been unable to conceive a child. And she decides then to take Hajar, who um, the story says was given to her by the Egyptian tyrant as a, you know, as a, as a gift. And she decides to take her maidservant or her female slave and uh, offer her to Sayyidina Ibrahim um, in the hopes that he can conceive a child. Now, what's interesting here is that, uh, you know, what is happening here? Because it's not that uh, Sarah wants Hajar to just conceive and have a child and have her own child. It, she is following an ancient code of the Near East. And as far back as the code of Hammurabi, we have uh, a rule about this, a law about what we would now call, um, what we would now call uh, a surrogacy. So here, this you can see in the Louvre the Museum in Paris, the original um, stele with the code of Hammurabi on it. And in the, um, 146th article, it talks about surrogacy. And it says, in particular, um, it addresses the issue that what if this surrogate then starts to arrogate herself or put herself on the same level as the free woman, because this is a very status and class based society. So article 146 says, if a man takes a wife, and she gives this man a maidservant as a wife and she bears him children. And then this servant arrogates herself to equality with the wife because she has borne him children. Her master shall not sell her for money but he may relegate her to the status of a slave putting, basically putting her down to the level of um, uh, of just a regular working slave. So think about this. When we think about the story, sometimes we may see this through the eyes of, of, of you know, Muslims who are living according to the Sharia that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals in the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But this is before that. And Sayyidina Ibrahim and his family, they are Muslims in their tawheed yet they are, have to abide um, by the laws of uh, the customary laws and the rules of the lands in which they live as long as they're living in there or else they have to keep moving. And they do that, they keep trying, but this is something, you know, an arrangement that is no longer permissible in Islam, um, in, in uh, the Islam that is given to us the Sharia of the final prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but it is a situation there, and we see, we see in some of the narrations that some of this dynamic holds. We don't know exactly. There are stories in the Bible in Genesis, and then there are stories in the Quran, and we do not know to what extent the stories in Genesis have any accuracy. In fact, in some cases, as you'll see, as we'll discuss soon. Um, they are uh, in violation or contradiction to the Quranic story and to the narration 
of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, so we would reject those narrations in that sense. So we have to be very careful about what we um, say we know about the situation. What we do know is that for uh, whatever reason, um, eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim to take Hajar and Ismail away from Palestine where they're living because after Egypt, they move to Palestine and there Sayyidina Ibrahim becomes, um, you know, more settled. He is, he gains uh, flocks. He has, becomes quite prosperous. He um, is very well known above everything for his generosity. So when we think about Sayyidina Ibrahim, we really associate him with generosity, honoring the guest, honoring the travel, traveler. Um, his tent is open. Anyone who passes by is welcomed. So this is the characteristic of Sayyidina Ibrahim. And subhanAllah, it is one of the things that we see that continually is, is present until today among, among Muslims in general, I would say. I mean, I've spoken to so many people who have just, you know, non-Muslims who have traveled to the Middle East on a trip or something. And the one thing that you will always hear is how generous and hospitable Muslims are. And I feel really proud to be part of a community that continues such um, an ancient sunnah, the sunnah of Ibrahim, subhanAllah. So we should really feel that connection with him. So in any case, uh, so we have Sayyidina Ibrahim, but he is now having to uproot Hajar and Ismail and bring her to Mecca. And here I want to highlight the difference in the, the story in Genesis and the story that is told by the Blessed Prophet, which we rely on, of course, Prophet Muhammad is a Sahih Hadith. And notice the differences. And it's important because noticing the differences tells us a lot about what it means to be able to, to present yourself as who you are and your own story and own hist history. You know, Muslims, um, not just in this age, but certainly in this age, are subject to being characterized by other people. You know, other people are telling us who we are, what we believe, um, pre predominantly through an Islamophobic lens or a stereotypical lens. Um, and it's really important that we always reclaim the right to tell our own story and who we are. So let's go to that. Um, let's go to that narration in Genesis and see what it says. Here is a painting from uh, Guercino, an Italian uh, painter of the 17th century, showing the biblical and the European view of of what happens at this moment. And this is entitled. Abraham casting out Hajar and Ismail. He's just sending her away and we see an angry Sarah in the background. And that is the version. And let me read the version that is in Genesis. Early the next morning, Ibrahim or Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hajar. 
He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel called to Hajar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hajar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So here is the version of the story in Genesis. And that painting really shows that the European um, image, the Christian, the Jewish, the biblical image, it is so different than the story that the Prophet Muhammad tells about his mother, about his grandmother, the matriarch of his city, the matriarch of Islam. So let's hear that. Ibrahim brought her and her son Ismail where she was suckling him to a place near the Kaaba under a tree on the spot of Zamzam at the highest place there. During those days, there was no one in Mecca nor was there any water. So he made them sit over there and placed near them a leather bag containing some dates and a small skin of water. And then he set off homeward. Ismail's mother followed him saying, yeah, Ibrahim, where are you going? Are you leaving us in this valley where there's no person whose company we may enjoy, nor is there anything here? She repeated that to him many times, but he did not look back at her. Then she asked him, has God ordered you to do this? He said, yes. She said, then he will not neglect us. And she turned back while Ibrahim proceeded onward and on reaching Thania where he, they could not see him, he faced the Kaaba and raised his hands um, and invoked Allah with the following prayer. Here we have the prayer of Sayyidina Ibrahim that is in Surah Ibrahim in the Quran where he says, he turns back and he prays for his family saying, oh, our Lord, I have made some of my offspring dwell in a valley without cultivation. By your sacred house, in order, O oh Lord, that they may offer prayer perfectly. So fill the hearts of people with love towards them and provide them with fruits so that they might give thanks. So what is the difference here? We see that our mother Hajar is not, you know, a pathetic, uh, uh, um, incapable, oppressed woman just collapsed sitting there crying. No, she first questions her husband. And subhanAllah, it's so interesting because one of the themes that we see in the life of the Prophet Muhammad SM is how he distinguished between his orders as a prophet and his own preferences. 
And the companions of the blessed Sahaba, they learned to even ask the blessed prophet, Ya, ya Rasulullah, is this from you or is this from Allah? Before they question his orders. And we see that, that, uh, that our mother Hajar, she knew to do that. So she asked him and she came to the realization. She knew of course that Sayyidina Ibrahim was a prophet. She had seen the miraculous things that had happened. And so then it occurred to her, okay, this must be from Allah. Is it from Allah? And when he said, yes, she is the one who immediately, she accepted it and she went to business. She turned around and said, okay, now what am I going to do? And it's just so beautiful when you read the many different narrations of it. After Sayyidina Ibrahim says, yes, God ordered this uh, me to do this. Then she, in, in numerous narrations, she says different things like, well, he will not leave us. Or she says, hasbi, like hasbi Allah, he, you know, that is enough for me. Or she says, you know, I am pleased with Allah's command. So you see this active um, acceptance on her. And, and when Sayyidina Ibrahim prays for them, he says, so they may offer prayer perfectly so that everything that Sayyidina Hajar does after this is really part of, you know, her worship and her faith. And she is rewarded for that. So she she knows she is in Allah's hands. And she proceeds then, once um, she is in, in Allah's hands, to uh, get to work. And that is where you know, she begins running back and forth. But before we go to the rest of her story, let's just take a moment to think about Sayyidina Ibrahim. So what about him? In doing this action, he too is only submitting to Allah's will. But as a husband and as a father, it must be difficult. And he worries about them. He leaves without speaking and perhaps he can't. You know, he's, he, it's so difficult for him, even though he knows this is Allah's command, but still he's a human and he is, is you know, he doesn't want to be separated from them. But when Sayyidina Hajar arrives at her own conclusion, he can affirm her. And he makes a supplication. And this is what we always have to remember that when we're in a situation where we cannot help our loved ones, there may be someone in our family who we've tried to help or we would love to help, but we're incapable of doing it for some reason. But we can always pray for them. We can always lift up our hands and pray for them. And we should never forget that. We should never say, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do. There's no way I can help them. No, we can always pray. And I also think about this separation with respect to our contemporary time and think about because of this horrible brokenness that has happened in the world, in the wake of European colonialism, and then these nation states, and all of the borders that have been placed up and the extraction of goods from colonized and post-colonized lands, and how people cannot make a living, they don't have land anymore, they don't have an ability to, to be able to sustain their families where they are, and so they have to leave their families. Think of all of those from 
Bangladesh or the Philippines who are working in the Gulf, all of those men who have to be away from their families, or think of how so many of the Muslims who are in Europe originally came as, as single men trying to make a living for their families, and some of them still are. And those men are forced to be away from their families. They're, they're lonely, they're abused, they're you know, tempted to seek uh, comfort in, in all sorts of ways that are unlawful and unhealthy. Now, Sayyidina Ibrahim's separation, of course, was different, but he, you know, he, was, he knew what he was doing. He knew this is the order from Allah. He was uh, protected um, you know, and guided uh, in a way that we are not. Yet I want us just to be able to connect with the human aspect of this story so that we also can continue to have empathy for the men of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because it is very challenging for so many of them. And it's really important that for those of us who have settled in a land that we offer the hospitality of our father Ibrahim to all of those who are displaced and um, have had to migrate. So let's return to, um, to the story of Hajar because the rest is really about her story. So we know that uh, after Sayyidina Ibrahim, that he, um, you know, she went to do her, her business, that she made this great effort. She ran kil majhud, uh, she ran with the juhud kil majhud, like with great effort back and forth, looking, you know, going to the hilltops to look, to see where is the water going to come? Where is her salvation going to come? You know, where is someone who's going to bring supplies? And this shows the limitations of our imagination. All of us human beings, we, we believe that the only way out of our current situation is if this particular thing happens. She would never have imagined that would, what would happen is Allah would open up uh, a spring of water right under the feet of her child. Um, but she gets to work. She does what 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 she you know what she can to improve her situation. And with that great faith and that great effort, Allah brings her something better, so much better than she ever could have imagined. And I love the part of the story where as she's running back and forth, and each time she runs, she checks on her son and sees him declining in his health. And then she thinks she hears something and she says to herself, she says, hush to herself, which is sort of the inverse of hush. Um, and I, I find that very poignant because she's all alone. <laughs> she's talking to herself, you know, when you're in that situation and she's, she says, you know, to herself, be quiet, hush to herself. And she calls out, hey, like whoever you are, I, you made me hear your voice. So, so do you have something for me? And that is when, um, when the angel uh, comforts her and tells her that they will be okay. The angel, Sayyidina uh, Jibreel, subhanAllah. And the water begins to gush. So here is, here is the 
user after asr. Here is the ease after difficulty. Here is the rizq that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is flowing out. Now, here is also a very human moment in the story because as the water is gushing out, what does she do? Our mother Hajar, she rushes to, to make a kind of like, like basin out of uh, the mud that has been created by the water flowing in order to try to capture it and, and preserve it because she's obviously thinking, who knows how long this water will flow? I have to save some of it. And that is just such a relatable moment. You know, we all know that our sustenance comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet when we get it, we still want to keep some back. We want to store it and hoard it, afraid that it will disappear. Pure tawakkil, pure, constant, ongoing tawakkil is rare. You know, the blessed Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam would give away any bit of food he had in his house. And there was seldom any food left over in his house. But if there was a morsel, he would give it away before he slept. Never saving something for tomorrow, just relying on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring him what he could. Nevertheless, of course, our mother is of such a high station. You know, she accepted a perilous situation, having faith that Allah would provide for her. Uh, the angel of revelation, Jibreel, spoke to her. A spring miraculously appeared in her presence, and her actions became the basis for one of the world's oldest, perhaps the oldest, continuously performed sacred rituals in the world, which is the running between Safa and Marwa, Isai. SubhanAllah. I mean, this is a ritual that continued even during the Jahiliyyah. That is so amazing to think about. Hajar is the founder of a ritual practice. She is the founder of a city with her son later marrying a local woman. She becomes the mother of a new people. So the story of Islam is one that begins with a matriarch and a patriarch. Each have their roles, each sets the foundation for rights and for the city, as Sayyidina Ibrahim will later when he comes back to build the Kaaba with Ismail. So this is, this is a religion of men and women, as we see and as we reenact in the Hajj and in the Umrah. And there's another note that I want to make here. And let me let me just get back and move to this. Uh, to another picture here, which is the role of women as water keepers. Because what happens is that, what happens is that, um, is that then later as they settle there, the, the uh, you know, Bedouin, the tribe of Jorhum, will come by, well, they'll be attracted to that place because they see some birds and they know the birds only appear where there's water. And so they're curious, is there water? And they, they come and there they see Hajar, our mother Hajar, sitting comfortably by the water. Already she's made this her, her home. 
So there she is encamped beside the water and they're amazed. And they say to her, um, will you let us stay with you? Will you let us settle with you? And she also who embodies that hospitality and generosity uh, that she's learned from Sayyidina Ibrahim says, yes, yes, you may settle here, but you will have no right to control the water. She is the guardian of the water. She remains as long as she is alive, the guardian of the water. And I think that's just such an amazing detail because across the world, we see that in traditional religions and traditional spiritualities, women are always guardians of the water. Um, in uh, the Americas in North and South America where I live, that is, um, there are so many interesting practices and, and rituals that indigenous people engaged in having women as the uh, in charge of water governance and as in charge of the water. That is something that was completely disrupted by British colonialism that brought in a patriarchal governance system, completely pushed women out of any positions of authority but women are reclaiming it. This is a, a picture of some Hopi women who are cleaning and opening up a spring that, um, that is the water source for their community. So you see, and this is probably similar to the kind of, you know, how Zamzam looked when it first opened. You see just some, some water bubbling up or coming, seeping out from the earth. Uh, and what's interesting with, you know, and this is a place where I find a real connection with indigenous people um, in, in Canada where I live now or in America, which is uh, my second home, um, is that they're reclaiming this uh, role for women as the water keepers or as the protectors of water. And we see that in many of the protests where there is oil explanation or pipe, pipelines are going in or other forms of very aggressive development that is just ruining the, um, uh, the biosphere, ruining the, the earth, you know, making it inhabitable for any other creatures that women are standing in front of those water bodies and saying no, that they will protect them. So it's just, it's really amazing. And I would, I would love to think about the ways that, that Muslim women can reconnect more also with that example of, and that, that sunnah in a way of, um, of our mother uh, Hajar, of being the one who says this water, water gives life. Life is impossible without water. And we are going to guard it for everyone, not just for all people, but for all of the living beings of creation um, uh, for which we have responsibility as khulafa fil arud, as the, as the people who are the caretakers of creation. So uh, a final note about our mother Hajar is that um, the Prophet Muhammad says that, that when Jorham settled there in the city, uh, Hajar Um Ismail, she was so happy. She really enjoyed those people's company. And, and I just love thinking about the fact that she 
you know, she found her place. She found a home after a very difficult life, a life of challenges and displacement. And she has her place and she welcomes others. And in that she finds new relations and new friends and a new community. And I think that's really beautiful. I think of all of the women I know in the Muslim community who've had to move so many times and have left their, you know, their homeland or in our new places. And when I see them, especially as they get older, you know, having, having a community and having friends and having the community recognize and honor them. And we really should do more of that. I would love to see, you know, our community recognizing and acknowledging the women, the, the wisdom and the experience uh, of the older women in our community. And I don't mean scholars, I mean, I mean ordinary women who have worked hard to find, um, to make a home for their families, whatever their family looks like. I just think it's, it's really beautiful. And she, so she lived the rest of her life in that city and, and died there. Now, we've spoken a lot about our mother Hajar, and I really did want to focus on her so much because, um, you know, her story is, is key to the Islamic story. Her story is key to the founding of Mecca, for the pilgrimage. Um, she is an archetype for all of us, men and women, women and men. Uh, and there's so many things we can learn from her. But a few more words about um, the other family members. So when we think about uh, Sayyidina Ismail and his life and what happens to him, we know there are so many uh, other events in his life. Um, and one of them, of course, is the potential, you know, sacrifice, so-called sacrifice. Now, Muslim scholars have long disagreed uh, over which of the sons actually was, um, was taken by Sayyidina uh, Ibrahim. Was it Ismail or was it Ishaq? So there is actually a disagreement among early Muslim scholars. Uh, and the important thing to note is that whichever son it was, and I incline towards the view that it is Ismail, because he was born first and just the way the story unfolds um, in the Quran and Surah Safat. Uh, um, so it seems, it seems to me, but Allahu alam, I don't have uh, absolute knowledge. And if the scholars disagreed, I can't say that it's necessarily one or the other, but I would like to turn back to the, the, the difference between the story in the Quran and the story in Genesis, the biblical story. I mean, the biblical story, the story in Genesis of the so-called binding of Isaac is terrifying. I mean, in this story, um, Sayyidina Ibrahim uh, basically has to, he, he's not transparent. He has to trick Isaac. And, and, and listen to what, what, what it says. So Genesis 22 says, and Isaac said to his father, Ibrahim, because his father told him, oh, we're going to go make a sacrifice. So Ishaq, Isaac says, my father. And, and Sayyidina Ibrahim says, yes, son. Ishaq says, the, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replied, 
God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Then he built an altar, laid the wood, tied up his son, and laid him on the wood, then took the knife out to slaughter him. Then God stopped him. I mean, this is a, a really terrifying story. No wonder people talk about, uh, you know, how, how horrible, you know, patriarchal authority is. If that's what a patriarch is, we should all reject that. But what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Quran? In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Sayyidina Ibrahim consulted his son when he reached maturity. So balagha. Balagha means that he now is mukallaf. He is, he is um, intellectually and morally capable of making a decision. So um, he became old enough to join his father in his work. And that means in his physical work and in his worship, his, his acts of worship. And Sayyidina Ibrahim says, oh, my dear son, ya bunaya, so loving, so tender. My dear son, I saw that while I was sleeping, meaning I had a divinely sent vision, that I should sacrifice you. What do you think? And he replies, oh, my father, do what you have been ordered, and you will find me, God willing, among the patient, among the sabirin. And then they both submitted, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in verse 103, ayah 103, this is of Safat. Then when they both had submitted himself and he had lain him down, um, then Allah stopped them. So here we have, uh, um, you know, this repeat of what we see with, with our, our mother Hajar as well, that it's, that it's this um, accepting of and decision to accept what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given of submitting themselves as the woman, as the, the son to this. Now they know that Sayyidina Ibrahim is a prophet and certainly um, Ibrahim's son has seen by this time all of the amazing and miraculous things and how Allah has guided Sayyidina Ibrahim. So he has that confidence in God and he has that confidence in God's prophet. He's not doing this as out of um, filial piety, that he's just obeying his father. And this is where we have to be very careful when we tell these stories, because too often these stories are told through an authoritarian lens and are distorted by the desires and prejudices of the people who tell the stories. I have heard some people say, that the story, the moral of the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim's dream and Ismail submitting to it shows that children have to obey their parents no matter what they ask them. No, that is wrong. That is spiritually abusive. Sayyidina Ibrahim was a prophet and there are no other prophets after Hatim and Nabiin, Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So no father who is alive today is has that authority. That's the first thing. Second, Sayyidina Ibrahim, he did not trick his son, like the story in Genesis, he did not attack him, he did not force him to do anything. He did not have the authority to take his life as a father. He was fully transparent, sharing his vision and asking him what to do. 
Sayyidina Ismail, he knew about his own miraculous origins and survival and that his father was a prophet chosen by God. And for that reason, he submitted to Allah's command. Similarly, Hajar was not abandoned by her husband, rather she was ordained by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be established as the matriarch of the Meccans and of the Muslim people. Sayyidina Ibrahim and his family, they lived in many lands. They had to follow the laws and customs to the extent that it did not conflict with Tawheed. But we Muslims, we do not follow the code of Hammurabi or the customs of the ancient Hebrews or the authority of the patriarchal prophets of Israel. Rather, we establish the limits set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the Quran and the teachings of the last prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the sacred law limits the authority of any, you know, the authority that any person has on over any other authority, a mother over a child, a father over a child, a ruler over the people, um, a sheikh over his students. No one is allowed to abuse or exploit others. Any power or authority we have over others is limited and legitimate, legitimate only for the benefit of those people. And that benefit has to be objectively comprehensible, not some kind of secret hidden benefit that goes against the Sharia. So it's really important um, to add that. So we have that story of the sacrifice, but then later we have also a beautiful story where Sayyidina Ibrahim comes back and he says to his son, he says, um, Allah has ordered me to, um, to build a place of worship. And um, so, so Ibrahim, who's, who's away, he's in Palestine, he comes back to, to uh, the area and he sees his son Ismail under a tree near Zamzam sharpening his arrows. Because remember, he was a hunter. And when he saw his father, he rose up to welcome him and greet him. And his father said, oh, Ismail, Allah has given me an order. And Ismail says, do what your Lord has ordered you, subhanAllah. And Sayyidina Ibrahim says, um, will you help me? And Ismail says, I will help you. And this is to build the Kaaba as a place of worship. And once it's built, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders Sayyidina Ibrahim to proclaim the Kaaba as a place of pilgrimage. And Ibrahim says, who will hear me? And because there aren't other believers in that area and Allah says, just proclaim, it is my responsibility to ensure that that call is heard. And how many millions of people answer that call today or want to? Hundreds of millions of people want to answer that call today. And it is said during those early days, it was stones, trees, hill and dust that responded, la baik Allahumma la baik, subhanAllah, all of creation that uh, responds to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's call, who are alive and who submit themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we should never, you know, as much as even we miss, certainly we miss the you know, the opportunity for those who, who might have the opportunity to go for, uh, for Hajj or for Umrah, 
And some people say, look, you know, the, the haram is empty. No, it's never empty. All of creation is still there. All of the creatures of creation are still there saying, labaik, Allahumma labaik. And we, among all of creation, simply have the choice. Are we going to say it or are we not going to say it? So this is only part of, you know, some of the story of these, this amazing family. Our, 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 you know, our family to whom we look for examples of faith, of submission, of piety, they did not have easy lives. They had challenging lives, but they relied on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They relied on their intelligence, on their strength, on their wit, any of their capacities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them to, um, to survive as believers. Part of that survival, you know, one of those tools was simply movement, leaving, going to a better place. And by doing so and being capable of doing so, they maintained their dignity. And when they arrived at a place, they gave, even if they had little, such great hospitality. And these are such important messages for, for our age. And that when we do get to a place and we do find our sustenance there, just as our mother Hajar, you know, was given this, this life sustaining water, she did not allow anyone to take it for themselves but ensured that it was available for others. So that is also our role for those of us who have found some security and safety, not only hospitality, but really to make sure that, that we work to you know, bring justice to a place and make sure that others also have their opportunity to live and survive and raise their families. Thank you for joining me today to remember this blessed family. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows you to enjoy all of the blessings of this holy month and these holy days. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide and protect your families and open doors of, of ease and sustenance for you and allow you to be joined together in faith and love. Assalamu alaikum. Support the next generation of Muslim thinkers by donating today at cambridgemuslimcollege.ac.uk.